The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. I'm going to start by praying for us, and then we're going to dive into God's word together. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. And we get to gather together once again on a, what seems like an average, ordinary Sunday. There was some sunshine, there was some rain. I'm sure in all of our lives there are some ups and some downs, and yet we get to center ourselves for just a few minutes on the greatest truth that ever was and ever is and ever will be, that you are God, that you reign, that you're victorious, that the world is not uncertain to you, that the future is not unknown to you, that our past is forgiven by you, and you are glorious that you're good, that you're kind, and you're merciful. As we just sang about, God, that there's no deed that can redeem us, and there's no right that we can do, there's no magic words that we can say. It's only by the work of Jesus. And I pray that that will ring true in our minds and in our hearts today. We love you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's where I want to start us before we get to Ephesians 1. There is a difference, you know this, there's a difference between knowing about someone or something, and actually knowing someone or something. For instance, uh, about 2008, I became a fan of the greatest basketball player to ever play the game of basketball, a guy by the name of Steph Curry. He's from Charlotte. You should be a fan, too. He's great. I won't fight you on that. I'm just right. All right, Steph Curry. And here's the thing. If you asked me, hey, Tim, you're a fan of this guy. Do you know him? In some ways, I could say, yeah, I know Steph Curry. I know that he played college ball at Davidson, just north of Charlotte. I know that he is married to Aisha. They have three kids, Riley, Ryan, and Cannon. I know that his real first name is Wardell. Bet you didn't know that. I know that he is almost a scratch golfer, not quite. I know that he won three NBA championships. And I know that in 2016, he broke the single-season NBA record for three-pointers with 402. So if you were to ask me, Tim, do you know Steph Curry in one sense? Yeah, maybe a little too much. (laughs) In another sense, I don't know him at all. Never met him. He has no idea that I exist, which makes me very sad. We've never interacted. We've never shared a meal together. So on one hand, I really know Steph Curry. On the other hand, I don't really know Steph Curry at all. Now, some of you, you don't do this with NBA players. You do this with other things. So, for example, my wife, if you asked her, hey, do you know Joanna Gaines? She would say, kind of. I watch her shows, I watch her network, I read her magazine, I've read her books, kind of, but she's never met her. She's been to to Waco once, never got to meet her. Or or let me just apply to something else. So I've shared this example before. I love CrossFit documentaries, absolutely love them. I follow a ton of CrossFit accounts on Instagram. So if you ask me, do you know CrossFit? I would say yes. How many times have I ever done a CrossFit workout? Zero. So in some ways, I know CrossFit. In other ways, I have no idea. I'll give you one more. Let me say, hey, do you know the lasagna at Mama Ricotta's? You can say, yes. Thank you. I've had the cheese. I've had the meat. It's so good. You're like, I've heard of it. It sounds awesome. But if you, until you go taste it, you have no idea. There's a difference between knowing about something or someone and actually knowing something or someone. If you missed last week, we looked at the first part of Ephesians 1 as we kicked off our series, and Paul laid out kind of this huge gospel bomb explosion for us of all the things that are ours in Christ Jesus. He said, you're chosen, you're redeemed, you're forgiven, you're adopted, you're sealed, you're brought up into the family of God, all of these beautiful things. And now in the second part of chapter 1, he's going to turn his attention from praising God to praying for the church. 
He goes from, God, this is how good you are. This is how much he's done for us. And then he's going to turn his attention in 15 and he's going to say, okay, now I'm praying for you. And his prayer, as we'll see in just a second, is that they would know everything he just talked about at the beginning of chapter one. Not just know and assent, not just know intellectually, but they would actually know it in such a way that it would affect their very hearts and their very lives. He says, I want you not just to know about God. I want you not just to know about the things he's done for you. I want you to know it in a deep, life-changing way. Let's look at it together. Ephesians 1, we'll start in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. So the first thing Paul says is, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for your faith in Christ, and I'm thankful for your love for one another. If you want to know what it means to be a faithful church, faith in Christ, love for one another. That's the baseline of faithfulness to Jesus. Verse 17 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. If you want to write in your Bible, underline that phrase, knowledge of him. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. You can underline that as well, that you may know. Let's talk about this for a second, this idea of knowledge. So when he says knowledge of him and that you may know, Paul is using actually two different Greek words to talk about uh, this idea of knowledge. And this is important. He says the first one that he uses when he says knowledge of him is the Greek word gnosis. Gnosis means knowledge gained through experience or relationship. So it's this kind of firsthand, I'm around this person, I've experienced this thing. It's a firsthand experience or relationship that leads to knowledge. Second, when he says in verse 18, that you may know, it's the Greek root word oida. And oida means knowledge gained through presence and through beholding. So when Paul says, I want you to have a knowledge of God, when I want you to know who God is and what he's done, he doesn't mean check the theology box. He doesn't mean just get all of your facts straight. What he means is to get in the presence of God such that you experience him and what he has done for you on a deep personal level. I don't want you just to have a cognitive awareness of this stuff. I want you to experience it deep down within all the nooks and crannies of your life and of your soul. And here at Citizens, we'll often distinguish the difference between uh, these kind of different knowledges. We're talking about head knowledge versus heart knowledge. So maybe you've heard us talk about this before. Head knowledge is this cognitive awareness of facts, right? It's this, okay, I assent to different things in my mind, but a heart knowledge is this deep-rooted, it actually affects how you live, how you think, what you love, how you go about your day-to-day life. And that's good, and that's helpful, but in the Greek culture, there was actually no separation between head head and heart. In fact, for those in Ephesus that Paul is writing to, the heart was seen as the center of physical, spiritual, and mental life. In other words, if it didn't hit your heart, then you didn't actually get it. If it didn't get deep down into your bones, into your soul, you didn't actually understand what it is that you were affirming. The Greeks didn't have any concept for simply affirming something mentally. Paul says, I want you to know I want you to behold God. I want you to experience his presence. I want you to experience what he has for you on a deep personal level. And then he's going to go into three specific things he wants them to know. Keep reading with me. Verse 18. He's going to lay it out for him. 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, and then he keeps going, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. So Paul's going to lay out three specific things he wants them to know. He says, I want you to know the hope you have in Christ, the treasure you are to God, and the power God has to save. The hope you have in Christ, the treasure you are to God, the power God has to save. That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about these three truths Paul wants the church in Ephesus and us to know. So we're going to talk about. Number one, he wants them to know the hope they have in Christ. The hope they have in Christ. Look back at verse 18. He says, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He says, I want you to know the hope that you have in Christ. Okay, so here's what's going on. Your salvation has a past, a present, and a future reality. All right, so it has a past reality. We talked about this last week, that before the foundations of the world, God chose you, that he called you to himself, that he adopted you as his child. That's the past. And then in the present, we believed and we still believe. The Bible calls us to hold fast to Christ, that his spirit seals us. There's a, a present component to our salvation, but our salvation also has a future dimension. We have something we are moving, not just away from, but actually moving towards, which means we're not just wandering about saved but purposeless, right? Saved but meaningless. The gospel is not just good news for our past. It's not just good news for our present. It's also good news for our future, we believe we have something that God is doing, that he's taking us towards, namely that he's redeeming and making all things new in Christ. We have a trajectory. We're going somewhere. And so because of this, our salvation should be marked by massive hope, right? Massive hope, not just because of what we've been saved from, but also what we're being saved towards. And here's why this is important. Here's what, why Paul's calling them to this hope. It's because hope is not an abstract emotion. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is not some feeling that you just have to work really hard to conjure up within you. I just want to feel hopeful. It's not what hope is. Here's what hope is. Hope is confidence in something that is unseen but certain. Hope is confidence in something that is unseen but certain. Let me put it this way. Hope means letting your certain future shape your uncertain present. Hope is letting your certain future shape your uncertain present. So last week, some of us went out to eat after the gathering, and we were talking, and Bethany, uh, our deacon of host team, was sharing a story about their really good friend who lives in Tennessee. She was talking about how her friend's dad, when he was in college, was approached by his roommate. And his roommate came to him and said, hey man, I want to start a fried chicken restaurant. I want you to be in on this restaurant with me. I want you to be my business partner, co-owner, whatever. I want you in on this. We're going to start a fried chicken restaurant. It's going to be awesome. And Bethany was saying that her friend's dad was like, hey man, I like you. That's a terrible idea. That's just not going to go well. You should not start that restaurant. This is not going to be good for you. No, I'm out. No way. Good luck. Pat on the back. Go for it. Here's the deal. That restaurant that he started, it's called Zaxby's. The Zaxby's, like Zach's sauce Zaxby's. So we were all at the table and Bethany's telling the story and we just, I mean, freaked out. Like, what are you seeing? You turned down Zaxby's? Like the, the Zaxby's, like I know it made me sick last week, but the Zaxby's, <laughs> you turn that down, right? But here's the thing. We all know the end of the story, right? We all know, hey, obviously he shouldn't have turned that down. Didn't he know how Zaxby's was going to turn out? But here's the thing. He was just a guy in college getting approached by his college roommate with a business idea. Most of you, if that happens, should say or should have said no. 
Here's the deal. If somebody approached you with an investment opportunity, somebody approached you with a certain stock, they said, hey, I got the next GameStop. Somebody approached you with a business venture, and you knew 100%, you knew this was going to succeed. You would be foolish if you didn't put your money there. If you knew this thing is going to kill, if you knew this future is certain, it should absolutely dictate how you act in the present. Here's what the Bible says. We have a more glorious and beautiful and certain and true and good future than a business venture killing it, than a stock option going well. We have the glorious future promise that Jesus is going to return. And it's sure and it's certain, and so that means it should affect the present. If you know how something is going to end, if you know the certain future, it should affect the uncertain present. So when Paul says, I want you to have hope, what he's not saying is, hey, just conjure it up. Just, just wishful thinking. Just grit your teeth and, ah, I hope it works out. No, you know your hope isn't rooted, not in an uncertainty that you're hoping turns out, but a certainty that you know is going to happen. So hope waits. It longs. That's how Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 1. He says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace. Notice, what's that word? That what? Don't talk back. That what? That will not that might, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this grace is not a guess. It's not a maybe. Jesus is going to come back. Be certain of that. It's a certain future. Set your hope on it. Set your heart on it. Let it impact your present. Actually know it and experience it in a real way. This is how Paul talks about it in Romans 8, 22 through 25. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. And the hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I love that. We wait for it with patience. Not fear. Not worry. Not anxiety. Not doubt. Not uncertainty. We wait for the promise with patience. What that means is that when this gets deep down into your soul, that you have a rich hope in Christ, that he's going to return, he's going to make all things new. It is absolutely crushing to your idols in the most beautiful way possible. So let me show you two of these. One is, is for me. This is absolutely crushing to my desire and need for control. Right? So when I have a night, like, I don't know, let's say last night, hypothetically, where I just can't sleep, and I'm up at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., and I'm just crushed with worry about the future because I love control and I want my family to turn out how I want it to I want my life to turn out how I want it to I want our finances to turn out how I want them to I want this church to turn out how I want them to and so I'm losing sleep just riddled with okay what do we do here how do we respond to that what are we going to do there okay I know what this person's going through how are we going to speak into that how's the gospel good I'm just riddled with this and so this is a crushing call back to me to go hey your hope is not in your ability to dictate the future my hope is not in my ability to control all things and keep all things manageable for Tim. My hope is to put it in Christ. Say he's going to return. He's going to come through. That he is good. That he is true. And even if it doesn't look like it now, even if it doesn't look like how I want it to over the next year, two years, five years, ten years, that Jesus is still one day going to return and make all things new. That's where my hope is. It's also absolutely crushing to our comfort idol. Because here's what we want to do. We want to hear Jesus is our hope, 
And in our society, our modern Western philosophy of immediate gratification, we want that hope to be now. We want that hope to be immediate. We want Jesus, okay, Jesus is my hope. Give me comfort now. Hope now, comfort. We just kind of want to like shove it into our hearts and be like, fix, be better, rest. The hope is, is in the future that impacts the present. Right? So even if it doesn't get better now, we still put our hope in what's to come. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, I got to hit this. Everyone's favorite Bible verse, right? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Yeah, it's so good. Do you know what he says literally right before that? You're going to spend 70 more years in exile under the oppression of a foreign nation. But I know the plans I have for you. We want the immediate. We want the hope now. Listen, hope is about future certainty. It might not get better now. It might still be hard now. It might still hurt. It might still be painful. It might be suffering that we don't want but Jesus is there, and he's good. We await a day where he's going to make all things new. So in our souls, and our hearts, as we feel Romans 8, this groaning of pain as in childbirth, this eagerly awaiting the adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies, we still wait. We trust with patience that Jesus is near to us, but one day he's going to return, and we serve a king who is not dead, but he is ruling and reigning and risen. Everything we're going to celebrate next week on Easter is true every single day. We don't have to wait till next week to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. He's alive now. He's on the throne now. He's king now. That's our hope. Number two, the treasure they are to God. The treasure they are to God. Look back at verse 18. It says, I want you to know this. I want you to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So at first glance, this seems like a rehash of last week, right? Paul's addressing the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus, a future kingdom, a glorious eternity, all the stuff we were just talking about. But actually what's going on here is Paul's not talking about our inheritance. He's actually talking about God's inheritance, all right, so notice what he says. He says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. It's God's inheritance. And what is his inheritance? You and me, the saints, the church. What that means that we are God's inheritance is that all who trust in Christ are God's treasured possession forever. Now, this is going to mess with some of y'all because it's been messing with me all week. Here's the deal. You, if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a treasured possession of God. That's going to mess with you. Right? Because I like to think that God tolerates me. Right? I like to think that God begrudgingly, because of Jesus, has to like, accept me, I guess. I like to think that God's love for me rises and falls with how I'm doing that hour. I like to think that God is like, ah, oh, dang it, why did he believe? No, oh, not him. He regrets saving me. He regrets loving me. But here's what Paul says, we are God's inheritance. We are God's treasured possession. And here's why I can say that with confidence. If you're in Christ, that you're a treasured possession because you being a treasured possession has nothing to do with you or what you've done to deserve it. It has everything to do with what Christ has done on your behalf. Let me show you this. Exodus 19, all the way back, Old Testament, second book of the Bible. So God brings the Israelites out of Egypt, right? He redeems them from slavery. He gives them the 10 commandments. And here's what he says to them. Verse five, Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God says to his people, if you obey me, you will be my treasured possession. 
But if you read the Old Testament, you know that God's people are very bad at obeying him, right? But in all of this, they keep obeying, disobeying, he keeps uh, forgiving them, they keep disobeying, he keeps forgiving them. And in all of the Old Testament, there's this trajectory that God is writing and unfolding and establishing a plan to bring together a people for himself who are his treasured possession based on God's faithfulness and the people's faithfulness. All right, keep tracking. So there's this idea. God's going to call together people for himself based on his faithfulness and the people's faithfulness. Skip ahead. New Testament, Matthew 1, Jesus comes, right? God's son. He lives a perfectly faithful life to God that none of us can live. He dies on the cross for our sins, resurrects three days later, defeating Satan, sin, and death. Now, what does this have to do with us being a treasured possession? 1 Peter 2. I'm realizing Ephesians is really just 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 4. It says, as you come to him, him being Jesus... A living stone rejected by men, but it, notice this, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So Peter says in 1 Peter that Jesus is chosen and precious. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So Peter's like, Jesus. Jesus is the one who is chosen and precious. Skip down to 1 Peter 2.9. Then he says to the church, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So God from the very beginning, right, was after a people for himself, people who would be his and enjoy him and his glory forever, a treasured possession. But in order for us to be God's treasured possession, we had to be faithful to him, but we couldn't be faithful to him. So what does God do? He takes Jesus, the one who is chosen and precious, comes to earth, lives the faithful life, yet dies the death that we deserve. And now all who place our faith in him are united to him. And now we are chosen and precious because God now views us as he views Jesus, that we are hidden in him, that his righteousness is our righteousness. His faithfulness is our faithfulness. And being chosen and precious means we are chosen and precious, which means if you're united to Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and God's treasured inheritance. The good news of that is that means God delights in you. Think about this. For all eternity, Even before time began, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in this mystery called the Trinity have been loving each other and glorifying each other and exalting each other. And in some weird, profound, glorious mystery, God says when you become a Christian, you get caught up in that. In an eternity of love, in an eternity of wonder, this joy. Here's why this is good news for you. If you learn to get this deep down into your soul, if you learn to actually know it in a way that it affects you, here's why this is good news. So many of us are looking to others to tell us that we're a treasured possession. So many of us. Some more than others, but all of us a little bit want to be in the sight of others a treasured possession. And so we're constantly asking the am I questions. Am I enough? Fill in the blank. Am I skinny enough? Am I cool enough? Am I trendy enough? Am I caring enough? Am I available enough? Am I empathetic enough? Am I funny enough? Am I rich enough? Am I powerful enough? Am I fill in the blank? Am I enough? 
So we show up, wherever we show up, whatever space we're in, and we're constantly going, how is this space and this group of people going to tell me what I feel like my soul is craving for, which is to be told that I matter and told that I'm treasured and told that I belong. And so we show up to church and we go, what does everybody think of me? Do I belong here? We show up to group and we ask, what does everybody here think of me? Do I belong here? We show up to work. We ask, what does everybody and my boss think of me? Do I belong here? show up to the bar, we show up to the brewery, we show up to the dog park. We ask, what does everybody here think of me? Do I belong here? And our souls long for and crave, somebody tell me I'm a treasured possession, but here's the deal. We are looking at everyone else to tell us because of our performance what God already tells us because of Jesus' performance. I'm sure you got that. We are looking for everybody else to tell us because of our performance what Jesus already tells us, or God already tells us because of Jesus' performance, namely that we are a chosen and treasured possession, that we belong. So we don't have to run around looking at everybody else saying, are you going to approve of me? Are you going to approve of me? I don't have to go date whoever's just going to say yes to me. I don't have to just go after whatever friend group is going to, yeah, whatever. It doesn't matter how they affect me. It doesn't matter what they get me into. I'm just going to go after it because they say I belong. And here's the thing. You have all the belonging you'll ever need at the foot of the cross. And it's not going away because it's not based on you. Never was, never will be. You are a treasured possession of God. And, and some of you, because I'm doing this even in my own heart as I'm saying it, some of you internally just want to push back so hard. No, I'm, I'm like, I'm 50-50 with God. He's like, no, we're neutral. We're talking about this in group this past week. I'm neutral with God. Like, the cross gives me new. It's like, no, you're treasured possession. Stop pushing back and let the Holy Spirit actually open up these walls that you put up because of the gospel and say, no, I, through faith in Christ, not based on me, not based on how my week is gone, not based on how I'm feeling right now, not based on what I think or whatever amount of faith I think I have based on my faith, even size of a mustard seed, faith in Christ. I am a chosen possession. Let it get there. Let it root. Stop striving. Stop just going for it. Cease the toil. Rest. Your treasured possession. Number three. Keep going in verse 18. The last thing he wants to know. He wants them to know. Number three. The power God has to save. The power God has to save. Verse 19, Paul says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Love that. He says it's immeasurable greatness. It's great might. He's powerful. He's working. And then, because we don't understand what the power of God is, he keeps going. Look at this, verse 20. He says that he worked in Christ. So in case you don't know the power of God, this is what God has done. First, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. All right, this is how you know God's powerful. He made a guy alive. All right, Jesus was dead, three days, physically dead. We don't believe in just a spiritual resurrection. We believe in a physical, bodily resurrection, that Jesus actually died and actually got up out of the grave. That's why we're celebrating next week with Christians all across the world. Keeps going. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. All right, he raised him from the dead. He gave him a throne. He's seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is ruling and reigning. It gets even better. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in the age, this age, but also in the one to come. Here's the thing. Jesus is in charge of the governments, of the principalities, of the powers physically, earthly, but also spiritually. God says, Jesus, you're in charge of all this. You're over all of this. 
We were talking about this. We do a 415 prayer time. If you want to join us before the gathering, feel free. And we were also thinking about this idea of like, Jesus isn't ever shaking in his boots. Like, this is Jesus' boots. You know what I mean? Like, he's just in charge. He's just on the throne. And it gets even better. He's like, Jesus is over these powers. But then verse 22, and he put all things under his feet. Everything we are afraid of. Everything. Spiritual forces of evil. The wrong uh, government party getting in power foreign nations, everything we are afraid of. Do you know what he says? Footstool for Jesus. Every physical thing you're afraid of, every spiritual thing you're afraid of, every emotional thing you're afraid of, you know your anxiety? Footstool for Jesus. Depression? Footstool for Jesus. Worry? Footstool for Jesus. Idols? Footstool for Jesus. This is footrest. That's how you know you're in charge. If your enemy is your footrest, you're in charge. Like, that's just how it goes. And he keeps going. Summary this whole thing, he says, he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the summary of all of this. God's in charge. Here's the deal. When this gets down deep into your soul, you start to grasp God has all the power. It means you don't have to hold your universe together anymore. You don't have to hold your world together anymore. You don't have to be crushed by that time you lashed out at your kid thinking, how is this going to affect the rest of their lives? Because you don't hold the world together. God does. You don't have to be crushed by the guilt over that time you lashed out at your spouse this week because you don't hold the world together. God does. You don't have to fret or get frustrated or angry if it feels like your boss isn't recognizing all the good work that you're doing because you don't hold the world together. God does. You can release the grasp that you have for power because God has all power. He's in control. God's enemies are a foot's rest for Christ. He has a measurable greatness and power to save. That's the three things Paul wants him to know. The hope we have in Christ, the treasure we are to God, and the power God has to save us. So what do we do? Here's where I want to close this tonight. Go back to verse 16. He says, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Paul says he's praying for this. Why is he praying? Because God has to do it. God has to send his spirit of wisdom. God has to send a spirit of revelation. He has to open the eyes of their hearts, great worship song, to enlighten them to who he is. So I thought a fitting application this week, Brent, you can go ahead and come, up, come on up. I thought a fitting application, I could have gone like, hey, well, here's three things to know this stuff better. And that would have been fine and good. And we do that a lot. It's a great way to preach. Uh, but here's what I want to do. I actually want to do what Paul says he does. He prays. He says, hey, I need you to know the hope that you're called to. I need you to know that you are a treasured possession of God. I need you to know that God has the power to save. And so I'm praying these things for you. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give us some space to pray. So immediate application. So here's what we're going to do. Feel free, if you need to, to let your body posture match what's going on in your heart. So if you need to stand up, if you need to spread out, if you need to journal, if you need to kneel, if you need to lay down, if you need to dance, feel free to do that in the back. Whatever you want to do. So, and we're going to pray. I'm going to give you some prompts, and I'm going to lead us in praying that God would open up, enlighten the, the eyes, the mind of our hearts, that we would actually know these things in a deep, tangible, life-changing way. And so I'm going to give you a few prompts, give you some time to pray after each one. Here's the thing real quick. If you are not a Christian, I don't want you to pray the three prompts. Because these prompts are good, but they're only true in Christ Jesus. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, welcome. I really do hope you find this to be a place where you can belong, where you can ask questions about who Jesus is. I would love to talk to you. I'll be down front afterward. But I want you to not pray the prompts. I want you to pray one prompt, and that's, God, would you show me how real Christ is? 
Would you change my heart? Would you change my life? Would you help me to believe in you, to turn from my sin and trust in you for forgiveness of sins and life eternal? That's your one prompt. To pray that he would make you and welcome you in Christ. The Bible says if you believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead and you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, that you will be saved. And we believe that. I'd love to talk to you more about it afterward. If you're a Christian in the room, here's your first prompt. I'm going to give you this and then you can spend some time praying about it and then I'll call us back for number two. Number one, I want you to pray that the Spirit would help you know the hope that is yours in Christ Jesus, that he is going to return. He is going to make all things new. This would stop your need for control and give you true comfort in him. We're going to leave that on the screen. I'll take some time and pray. number two. Pray that the Spirit would help you know that in Christ Jesus you are a treasured possession to God. You don't have to seek approval or validation from others. Number three. Pray that the Spirit would help you know that God has the power to save. And he's in charge. So you don't have to hold your world together be on the throne of your life. God, thank you that you are after our hearts. You're not content with us just knowing some things about you. Cognitively being aware of what you've called us to, aware that the future is certain that Jesus will return, aware that you love us and call us treasured possessions. You're actually after our hearts. You want to affect how we think, but also how we believe, how we love, how we live. And I pray that these truths from Ephesians 1 would get down deep within us, that it would affect how we live on Tuesdays, Thursdays, days that seem ordinary and mundane and average, God, that these deep truths that we have an eternity promised with you that is a sure thing, that we are your treasured possession, that you have all power and authority, that will actually affect how we love each other, how we go about our jobs, how we go about our parenting, how we go about our marriages, our friendships, our errands. We need you. Would you open up? Would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see you? Love you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.